thank you for coming to the 11 o'clock session. The name of it is Apple's Growing Divide Between Users and Programmers. I'll read the description so that you have a brief idea of what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> the incredibly open nature of the Apple II for development, down to the inclusion of schematics in every box, encouraged a generation of users who are also programmers. By contrast, today we have the walled garden of iPhone OS, where Apple rules all. Between these polar positions is the Macintosh. How have Apple and Apple users evolved over the years? Has using computers become more or less creative? What trade-offs have we made between accessibility and empowerment? How do the Apple II and its users measure up to modern times? And the reason we're having this panel is because I wanted to have a panel. The format for this session actually came before the topic because we've had panels before and they always seem pretty fruitful. And I wasn't sure quite what we could talk about. Then we got an article in the last issue of QCS from Ivan discussing this exact topic. And I thought maybe we could crack it open a bit more, look at it from some additional perspectives, because this is really hot right now. I work at computerworld.com, and a lot of people are complaining that Apple is being too restrictive about their computer, and I wonder if that's actually true. So these three panels have agreed to discuss it, both from their own perspective and to engage in each other. The idea here is to walk away enlightened, not enraged. So, <laughs> if you do have questions, if you could please save them for the end, that'd be fantastic. The users, uh, the panelists are essentially encouraged to uh, speak to each other, not just me, because I'm here to moderate, not to analyze. And we will start just by, uh, if you just go down and briefly say, you know, who you are and who or what you're representing. Well, the next question after that will be, what is your experience with these devices? So just for now, who are you and why are you here? Uh, Mike McGinnis. I, uh, I guess the Apple II stuff that I do is I do a lot of scanning of the sort of documentation. I did the computers project. I scanned all those. I'm currently doing the uh, I'm currently doing the Apple Works Forum uh, magazine and a few other things that I hope I like to work with. I'm Ivan Drucker. I am the owner of Ivan Expert. We're a Mac consulting company in Manhattan. And I am a former Apple employee. I was a software quality engineer and I worked on, uh, the most recognized thing I worked on was the classic environment of Mac OS X. And uh, prior to that, some more obscure applications like Macintosh application environment. And, uh, the, uh, and actually, I worked on Copeland as well, writing performance scripts for that, which ultimately, I think, wound up being used on uh, what became Mac OS i I'm Martin Hay. Um, I started as an Apple II Plus programmer. Um, now I work for the California Digital Library, including um, electronic books, electronic articles, all that sort of stuff online, making them searchable. Uh, I never worked for Apple, and actually I abandoned Apple when they flipped up Apple to users in general, and uh, they, they did lure me back with units, but I'm kind of tentatively maybe okay with them a little bit now. So while we start, all right, come back this way, what is your uh, experience with Apple's modern devices, the iPhone, the iPod, the iPad, and or its competitors? Um, I, starting with competitors, I, I had a Palm PC, not a Palm PC, a Palm, oh, a Palm 5, um, and I went through a zillion generations of that, and then I jumped to the iPhone, 
pretty much when the iPhone came out, I was blown away by its internal space. Um, I have not, I tried to program for the iPhone and it, it didn't really fit in my brain, so I have not really programmed for it. Um, I have been using Apple's products heavily since 1978, and their desktop computing products, that is. And, uh, and I continue to, of course, in, in my work. And as far as mobile devices go, I've been a, a heavy mobile device smartphone user from the beginning. I've had first Trio, and I, um, and I, I currently use a BlackBerry. I have never used an iPhone. I play with an iPod Touch sometimes. I think that there is, I think we'll probably get into some of the reasons why, but, um, as, as I do think that the iPhone's user interface is very simple, but I also find that it's inefficient um, once you master its instantaneous learning curve. Um, my relationship with Apple pretty much ended uh, with the Apple II line. Um, the early Macs, I, I had no interest in it. And um, I do have an iPod, uh, the older click wheel iPods. I've, Used friends' uh, iPhones. I played with the iPad, um, but I don't really have a whole lot of experience. I want to like the new Apple stuff. I just can't get there. Um, as far as smartphones, like Ivan, um, I've been using smartphones for close to a decade now. Started uh, with the old uh, the Palm devices. Uh, <laughs> the trio, and then they migrated Palm OS to the phone. Uh, I currently use uh, Blackberries, and uh, I'll be switching to Android here shortly. As will I probably. And why would you be making that switch, Peter? Uh, uh, because I don't want AT&T. Oh, that's like a carrier. No, um, I'm not getting an iPhone. No, I understand, but why are you switching to Blackberry? Uh, I don't like OS. It's uh, child-based, it's slow, buggy, um, and Blackberry is. As far as I'm concerned, BlackBerry is sort of in this uh, slow decline. Sort of, they're, they're, they're coasting on their their corporate contracts and their government contracts. So there's no innovation there. There's nothing new. Just like, oh, yep, yeah. yeah. And uh, BlackBerry, I you know when it came out in like 2003 or so, uh, it was great. And it was new and, <coughs> and seven years later, I'm still seeing the same thing uh, on the phones. It's got a slightly updated interface, but it's basically the same thing. Now, Mike, you had said that you want to like the Apple stuff, but you just can't. Um, what is it that's keeping you from being that possible? Um, well, with, with the iPad, um, uh, in particular, it's, it's to be one the iPad is, is a perfect example. It's almost there. You know, it's, it's, it's got a great interface. It's nice and smooth, but it's missing. Yeah, I, I tend to like to want to, to play. Uh, I like the, the old architecture that you have with the old Apple II stuff, obviously, I think most of us do. And it's just not there anymore. You know, there's, there's no... In order to, to actually get in there and play with the iPad, you have to do a lot more work than, I, than I'm going to do. Uh, it's basically become... It's, it's Steve's, uh, Steve Jobs' sandbox. He's playing his rules, he won't play. It just doesn't matter. Programming anyone on a computer is a pain in the ass. And programming the iPhone is one of the easier programming tasks today. 
when Apple provides for free, like they used to with Apple II, really, really nice tools to build apps for the, for the, for the iPhone. Um, I, I absolutely agree with what they do. It's just that if they don't like your application, you don't get to put it out for people to use unless you want your users to violate their end user license for the device. Right. But on the other hand, they do all the marketing for you. They do the server. But, but that is different. What you just said, though, is different than what you initially said, which is that it's too hard to get in there and just do something. So you were talking about, so your concern is not just being able to do something, but being able to do something that other people will see. Um, I just don't like the, the feeling that I'm being restricted in, what, uh, in, in the way that, if I should, if I write an app application for the iPad, then I should, I feel I should be able to do what I want with that. I don't, I don't want to have to have mom's approval back in Cupertino before I can, you know, get it out there for you to see. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and as far as the, I guess, I guess with the, the, the first point, I was talking more about the hardware. You know, um, I, I'm drawing a blank on it now, but there's, it just feels like the iPad is, is lacking a lot of, um, uh, uh, a lot of hardware things that I would like to see. Um, it's not 16 by nine, um, and like I said, I, I'm drawing a blank on the, the specific. Uh, specs right now. But well, one thing that's annoying is that you have to be licensed to, if you want to develop anything for the dock connector and get all the information for that. So, uh, I, I have similar sympathies as far as the, the mom factor um, because I do like to get in there and hack and just do things. And while I agree with Martin that actually Apple does provide really robust development tools. For free, they are the only development tools you are allowed to use, and then you need mom's approval if you if you if you want to distribute it. And I think, even though it's probably not really that much of a restriction, I can kind of probably do what I want. There's kind of the, just that feeling that you know there's some there's a door in the API that says do do not enter, you can't enter, you know, or actually it's just the absence of that door. In the API. Um, and uh, you know, and it's just working within what you know are defined confines, both as a user and as a developer, is I think the part of the iOS experience that, that feels uninviting to me. What do you think Apple's motivation has been to make it so difficult to get these programs out? Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. They have a certain level of quality control, which is nice. It, you know, now I think Apple, I think Apple's adopted a lot of this stuff in, a, in kind of a cynical fashion. I think they're they're embracing openness to the extent that it makes them money. Right, lights. Uh, but they're embracing an awful lot of openness to the extent that it does make them money. Um, yeah. And they're trying to control crapware on the Apple Store, but try harder. They, they, you know, they would have to try harder. There's a lot of apps on there, and a lot of them are pretty crappy, actually. So you can write a crappy app and get it on the App Store, um, and you don't have to pay Apple to do so. Um, or like you have to pay like 200 bucks or something. 
to actually be able to distribute it. Yeah. And when you compare that to the price of an Apple II in modern dollars, which would be about 3000 uh, compared to the price of... But you don't have to pay anything to distribute an app on the Apple II. Yeah, I mean, you have to you invest know, in the hardware, but... but if you just add the total cost, it's it's a fraction of what it used to be. It's not. You need to you need a Mac to develop the code. What's that going to cost you? Okay, but um, I, I feel like uh, the I I I don't know. I think I think it's the feeling that um, actually I completely just lost my train of thought. So, well, one question I have is: you say that Apple wants to make money through this oh, policy. Right. Yes, that was, that was my thought. I don't even have to finish my question then. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I feel like there is a two-pronged reason as to why Apple's like this. One, I do feel like, the, like you know, if the Apple II is wide open, you know, here's everything we know about this machine, do whatever you want with it. And admittedly, that made a very inconsistent user experience. You know, it was, as a developer, you were God. But, you know, as a user, you know, every, every program had a different interface. And the Mac, attempted to sort of contain that as sort of an interim step by you could still do anything, you were still God as a developer, but you were given very specific guidelines as to this is how you should develop your app so it can be consistent with other apps. And then the iOS actually enforces that. So you've, you've you know, so in some ways I kind of feel like the iOS, the iOS allows Apple to have a direct relationship with its users without Developers potentially getting in the way. Developers are allowed to play, but the relationship is between Apple and the user, and there's a huge business thing behind that because the iTunes Store, you know, owns the vast, vast majority. Majority, uh, the App Store has the vast majority of, of the mobile apps market, and so they have no incentive to allow other development tools, um, which might allow you to cross compile to other platforms or um, you know, so I think there is a certain amount. I wouldn't necessarily call it cynicism, but I think it's cynicism in the sense that there's what's good business by locking out others for as long as you can for 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 that company is presented as it runs in contrast with Apple's presentation as the brand of human computing and openness. Now, do I recall correctly that? Is it fair to say that each of you have programmed the Apple II more than you have the iPhone? Yes. Yes. True. So, by Apple making this decision, are they improving the user experience? Are they stifling programming creativity? Are there trade-offs? Is this a better or worse scenario for them? Then, yeah. Sure. See, it's, it's, it's like we were talking about yesterday. <coughs> Presenter, you know, let's face it, the world has moved on from hobbyists to users. I've got this device in my pocket and really need to make a phone call. And if it crashes, I'd be really pissed. Um, and it does crash because I jailbroke it. It'll crash anyway. But most of us are users. We're not hobbyists anymore. And to not recognize that fact would be silly in well, I think the biggest example of that is the, what you just want to point out is Apple's change of its sort of name from Apple Computer to Apple Corporate. It's not a computer company anymore, it's a consumer electronics 
company. We make products for end users. And we're going to control uh, that user experience uh, the best that we can, and, and, and hopefully the users will reward us being Apple um, by buying our products. And so far they have. Do you think they're abandoning the Mac? Um, I think that's coming. I don't know how many more revisions you're going to get of Mac OS that look like Mac OS. Well, I, I, you know, uh, there was a Rolling Stone article in, I think, 1995 or six called The Fall of Apple. Um, and it was, it was actually a, a great article. I was actually working at Apple during those years when it came out. I was I actually got the the end of Spindler, all of Emilio, and the beginning of Jobs Part Two. And the um, you know, and in that article, they interviewed Jobs, who was still at Next at that time. And, and it's funny given the stature he has now. But like at that moment, he he was really part of computing's past. He was he was an irrelevant player. And he said, you know, if I was Apple, like, Microsoft has won the desktop war, so I would milk the Mac OS for as long as I can and get started on the next big thing. Clearly, that seems to be what he's doing, you know. And, and you know, I understand why he's doing it, you know. It's kind of a bummer if you're uh, a Mac enthusiast, and it's a bummer if you're a developer who wants to be able to do whatever you want. But, I mean, I, I do have to agree with Martin that, you know, um, consistent and reliable user experiences do make things better for users. But it's less likely to make users into programmers. Absolutely. Well, I love what Google has done. Like, I, I mean, without getting into the pros and cons of Android, <laughs> I mean, you know, they just last week uh, released this thing, App Inventor, which is programming without code, which I just think is so fantastic. To me, that is the spirit of the Apple II. That means that, you know, someone who, like, I mean, like, if you look at Objective-C and you've never seen it before, it's like, you are terrified. You don't want to go anywhere near that thing. And, you know, and the fact that they've put something together that, like, it's it's in the spirit of the Apple II, it's in the spirit of HyperCard, but it's coming from Google. And whereas, you know, uh, whereas Apple couldn't be going in a different direction. And, yeah, that's going to lead to some ugly and inconsistent apps, but people can go ahead. Anybody can go ahead and make those ugly apps, and some of them are going to make brilliant apps, and they can distribute them, and I think that's fantastic. Now, you said that the spirit of the Apple II is the openness, and Apple has transitioned away from that with iOS, but closed systems are not new. I mean, the Apple II GS and the Super Nintendo, for example, have the same architecture, and yet you can make anything you want if the Apple II GS, whereas Nintendo had to approve the Super Nintendo. Obviously, they're very different machines with different purposes, but the point is that you can have a closed system that is successful and does support independent development, like the Xbox 360 does today with its Xbox Live Arcade and community arcade games. Right. So, why is iOS being seen as an aberration and being held to a higher standard than these other machines that are receiving acclaim? I've actually thought about this at some length. And I think the answer, I, I kind of think it's some, it's some combination of three factors. The first factor is the Apple brand, which is those other platforms have not staked a claim as being the creative platform. And if you are a developer, then developing is your expression of creativity. So. That's, I think, one reason, but I think another, you know, that, that, so part of it is the Apple brand itself and what it claims to represent. And then I, I, I think also 
it's the nature of a general purpose device versus a specific purpose device. So I would argue that even though they're phones and media players, uh, that iOS is a general computing device. It has an, a, a general keyboard. It can do lots of different kinds of things. Whereas, you know, Xbox and Nintendo, even though you can extend them and do things with them, are specific computing devices. And then, but that, I think really the last factor is that there's, this is kind of a strange thing, but I was thinking about this, there's a proximity factor. The relationship you have with something that you're looking at six inches to two feet from you is very different somehow than the relationship you have with something, I don't know, eight, eight feet away, 12 feet away, where you may or may not have a full keyboard or other means of expressive input. Um, and the phone is the most, you know, like the most intimate thing of all, like you're touching the screen. So I think it's some combination of those three factors that make iOS feel different to me than, than consoles. I feel like we need to give Apple a little bit of credit, and, and we need to distinguish between walled gardens. Um, some walled gardens are a lot more walled. Um, my husband just bought, he, he thought that all smartphones are the same. God only knows why. So he bought this QuickFire from AT&T. What is that? It's basically a Java ME type thing. Got it. And it's awful. And you can only buy apps that AT&T approves. <laughs> That's all of their apps. That's awesome. awesome. All of their apps suck. <laughs> I mean, they're incredibly atrocious. And if you don't like it, you don't. You also don't get a refund. But you pay thirty dollars for. But they got apps. a great network. <laughs> <laughs> so Apple, you know, Apple, and Apple has this uneasy marriage with AT and T. And AT and T's corporate culture really got stomped. And. It, the proof of that is that they're still doing their old thing in their own world, and they think it's just great. Um, so I think we need to distinguish between good walls, good wall gardens, and bad wall gardens. It's, it's a continuum. I don't know that was AT T as far as you know the, the buying the apps. Yeah, I think that was every phone carrier. You know, has their crap true. apps. Yes. Well, right. well, well, I mean, it used to be, and, and, and with everybody except AT and T, I think it still is basically that. The hardware maker it makes the handset and then gives it to Verizon or whoever, and Verizon customizes the application. Well, I believe that's how Apple got their exclusive with AT&T. Yeah. Was AT&T were the only ones letting Apple well, exactly. make an yeah. Apple phone and not an AT&T. They went, to, they went to Verizon first and said, this is, and said, this is what we want to do with our phone. Right? So like, there's no way we're going to do that. So um, I, don't, I don't think AT&T is, is alone in, in that particular uh, way of thinking. I, I, I should clarify by saying, I see absolutely nothing wrong with the App Store. In fact, I think the App Store is fantastic. Mobile delivery by on any other platform is is like I mean I use Windows Mobile devices. I I, I wrote Windows Mobile applications for their PDAs and, and I wrote a couple of cool ones and big ones and that was fun and everything. But it's like holy crap! Just even trying to get your app onto one of like Handbank or one of the awful mobile device providers and then or buying something from there and getting it to your phone. I mean the App Store just like makes that experience so great. So I have no problem with the App Store. I just wish it weren't the only way that you could get an app to an iPhone. It's like, fine, let Apple have their store, let them be as fashion as they want over there, but you know, please let us. At least let me stand in a room with somebody else and trade apps. Right, exactly. Hey, I just wrote this great app. And I love it, you know, and I love that on the trio, right? Like Beam, Beam right. an app. 
exactly. So intimate in a way, you know. And I, I kind of feel like that, in, strangely, as intimate as Apple tries to make the UI in the iOS, that intimacy is between you and the device, and by extension, Apple, as opposed to you and other people. Now, MIT has a programming language called Scratch, which they developed as an instructional tool. It's supposed to be a, an introductory programming language that especially uh, middle school and elementary students are exposed to. Uh, somebody who I think is not MIT, a third party, developed a Scratch application for the iPhone, submitted it to Apple, and they rejected it for the same reason that they reject emulators. They're trying to be consistent with their policy. Now I know someone who's pursuing their PhD in computer science, uh, a huge Mac fan, he has you know, a Mac that boots into Mac OS, Linux, or Windows, he has an iPhone and everything. When he heard about this decision to carry the Scratch application, he sold his iPhone because he said that it is morally reprehensible for Apple to withhold access to educational tools, especially in a platform that is so popular. So does Apple have some sort of responsibility to society? I mean, now that the iPhone has so permeated society and it is almost everywhere, do they need to be more responsible with how accessible it is or what they let people do with it? I think they do, actually. But I, I also agree that, that it's, it's crazy for them to not allow emulation. I mean, who is hard by programming an Apple to basic no one literally is covered by that. So I have not been able to figure, figure out any reason, cynical or not, that they're doing that. Their stated reasons are just laughable. Why? We're trying to make a more consistent experience. What? You can, you can make the display on an iPhone do anything. Right, but they don't want you emulating an Android. You know, or something. They don't want you getting your apps from any other source than the App Store because that because it's their business model. But why would they emulate? Because an emulator might be for a modern platform. Sure, eight-bit emulators are harmless, but not every emulator is eight-bit. So then, I mean, well, I, I, I would download software from somebody else and run it on your emulator. Right. That's what they don't want. Um, now I would agree, and and I could even argue that like you know like like say someone does do a Commodore or Apple emulator that kind of thing, they still don't want you downloading apps from someone else because they want you downloading apps from them. Even Commodore apps? Even Commodore apps? Well, I mean, because if you get your then let me download Commodore apps, but they won't let me do that either. Yeah, but they don't want you to. They want you, oh, let you download Commodore apps from the App Store. Yeah, I understand. Let me pay 99 cents for Choplifters for the Apple II. I, I couldn't agree more, but, you know, it's, it's... I, I think, though, to answer your question, Ken, um, I don't think Apple actually has a responsibility to society to, to make... I, I, I agree with Martin that the, that you can't use any other development environment than, than, like, forget emulators. The fact that you can't use any other development tools, you have to use Xcode, you have to learn Objective-C, like, just really, like, irks me as a developer. It's like, it runs machine language. Whatever, all, like any computer, whatever you do to get, make something happen on the iPhone, it seems to me like, you know, 
And I understand that, again, they don't want cross-compiling so that you can easily deploy on other platforms so that they can, but, like, you know, it's, it's... There's a cynical. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a cynical business. For, I mean, this, right. Now, but do they have a moral responsibility? No. Would I like to see them? Yes. I, I, think, I think it's obnoxious, their policy. Well, I, I tend to take kind of the opposite, the opposite uh, stance of uh, Apple's, when it really comes down to it, Apple's a business. Uh, they're, they're, they're a hardware company just like the rest of them out there, regardless of Steve Jobs' reality distortion field. And that's the, the, the pretty stuff that he says on stage, their only responsibility is to their, is to their stockholders. They're, they're in business to make money, and that's what they do. And, and Mike Martin, I certainly don't agree with all their decisions on a personal level, but you know, as far as, as being responsible to society as a whole or anything like that, no, absolutely not. I do think as a developer, it's a bummer, though. I don't have, right, I can agree with it that there are businesses that are entitled to do what they want to do, and, and that sucks, but I mean, you can take that to an extreme, too. Like, you know, they can start, I mean, they're not going to, but I mean, hypothetically, you could say, oh, well, they're going to start, you know, uh, uh, selling something that, you know, just is, I, I can't come up with an example, but I'm just thinking, just to say they're a business that's only responsible to their stockholders and therefore nothing they do can be judged, that, that I disagree with, but I don't, in this particular case, I, I think that they're responsible for it. Making iPhones more accessible to middle school students, etc. Now, we've talked about how Apple has transitioned their audience from uh, non obvious to obvious and the like, users to programmers and vice versa. But if you look at the demographics of this Apple II convention, there are a lot of iPhone and iPod and iPad users here. So we fall into both demographics. We have bridged that gap. How can Apple do that? How can they make a device that has the best of the Apple II and iOS? What would that device look like? First, I'd like to ask a question. How many people here have written a Mac in 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 Objective C specifically? In any language. That's about what I thought. So the Mac is not a wall garden. You can write in any language you want. You can make emulators. Why is this audience stuffed with programmers not programming the open machine that Apple makes? Martin, would you include HyperCard with that? Would I include what? Would you include HyperCard with, with that? I guess, yeah, 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 sure. Okay, then. All right, so that's a couple more. <clears throat> Fact is, it's just not very fun. It's not fun. You're asking mom for the keys to the car. No, it's not that. It's all these menus and all these events, and it's all very confusing. It's a lot of work. Oh, you're talking about programming the Mac. Programming the Mac. And so, it's true. Part of the simplicity, part of the joy of programming the Apple II is it's the fact that it is so small and limited. Like, you can understand the entirety of the Apple II in your brain, whereas it's not even possible to understand the entirety of uh, 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 networking on a Mac or you know it's 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 just a it's, it's a massive universe sorry what was your question Ken? what would a device look like that has the best both the Apple II and iOS 
Is it, is I, it, I would certainly like to see. I don't know that the device physically has to change, but I I would like to see um, something that makes it easier to develop. A hypercard, uh, uh, the Google App Inventor thing, right. some kind know, of visual programming language, something that makes it something like AppleScript. You know, something that makes it so <laughs> we don't have to be deep in the APIs of, 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 a, of a slightly cryptic programming language to be able to make your device do new things. Right, like a macro language would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And would, and would the product of these new environments still have to be approved by Apple? Not in my ideal universe, but it's an unrelated issue. Yeah, why should I have to approve my macro? Apple would then be giving up their control over the device. They would have to change their goal of creating a consistent user experience, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, for Apple to maintain a consistent, I mean, it depends upon, I guess, what you consider to be consistent. The Mac offers a pretty consistent user experience. Yeah, there are some deviant apps, but it's pretty consistent. And, you know, whereas the iPhone is fascist in its consistency, it's perfect, it's unyielding. If you're a developer, you can't skin it. You can't, you know, you can't put things in the background. I mean, you can do all this if you jailbreak it, and that's why people do, you know, because people want to use this device that's awesome to do the things that they want to do. So but they do it because they're pissed off. Well, there's that too. I agree. There's, the door is closed and they have to open it. No, that's right. But I, I think that uh, it's, yes, they would be letting go of, a little bit of the user experience, and I think that could easily be to the benefit of users. And Apple. And Apple. Well, I don't know if it's for Apple, but it certainly would be for users. Sure. En envision, you know, a classroom <coughs> with a bunch of students with iPads yeah. learning programming. Yeah. Wow, Apple benefits just the way they used to benefit by selling a zillion devices. Absolutely. Yeah, I want, that's the thing. And actually, I thought about this. That I mean, one problem I have with the iPad that maybe a lot of people don't have, and the iPhone and all these devices, is like I touch type fast. And I feel so limited in my just ability to even input. I know you can Bluetooth keyboard and dock keyboard on the iPad. I, that, that's all good. But I, like, I would love there to be some means of expressive input. I don't know what that would be. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, an interface designer, but you know, I would like. I, I'm getting a bit far afield, but I, I agree with what Mark said. How great would it be if you know you've got people, they've got this thing, and they feel like, what can I make this thing do? That's what the Apple II is all about. When I see that blinking square, I'm like, what can I make this thing do? And that really has changed. Yeah, and 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 you know, and and the Mac turned down the volume on that a little, and the iOS turns it down all the way, pretty much. I feel like. Well, I, I think that this is, you know, goes back to the, the basic philosophy of the two founders of Apple. Was made this machine that he would want to use and, and to program and play with, and you know, his intention was never really to sell it or make any money with it. He just wanted a computer that he could use. And Jobs saw this as an opportunity to, you know, create a business around it. There's nothing wrong with that, but for Jobs, a computer was always an appliance. You know, it's it's an elegant appliance, and, and we don't want you to see the magic smoke in the box. And when you start getting down and, and playing in an open architecture where you have low-level access to the, to the hardware interrupts and things like that, then you're in an area where he doesn't want you sniffing around. 
because you might do something that, I don't know, maybe that, that, that he doesn't think that you should be doing with his devices. This is, to me, this is all, this is kind of a, a part of sort of a bigger trend that's going on in digital media in general, where the content creators, the big companies that create movies, television, whatever, uh, are taking back more control of the content and saying, we're not selling you the content, we're, we're selling you a license to use it in a way we think you should use it. If you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. Um, you know, and, and um, there are rumors now that iTunes is going to be moving to the cloud. And it's going to be storing all the music and everything up in the cloud, so you won't actually have this, this content locally to do with what you want. If Apple decides, for whatever reason, hey, this, you know, or the, the artist that made the song decides, I don't want people to have access to the song anymore, they can pull that and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and to me, that's kind of a disturbing trend. Although, getting back to what's good for users, like, that stuff needs to be in the cloud. People need to, people use two, three, four computers and devices regularly, and the whole notion that it's like your iPad or your iPhone is married to your one Mac is just a, a really outdated idea at this point. I mean, yeah, and, 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 forget iPad, and you can't use it because your Mac's too old. Right. You can't use an iPad without a Mac or without a PC of some sort. It's, that's Stupid. Yeah, I think that will change, but yes, it yeah, is stupid. Yeah, and also like, and then also the need for the cloud stuff, like with photos, which aren't going to be subject to the same like, I don't like the song kind of thing. But it's just like, you know, it's like people like, you know, we had a client that I've been like trying to figure out a solution for her for, you know, a year or something like that. As she's like, I've got three machines, and I just want iPhone to be the same on all three of them. He can't do it. I don't have a problem with, with the idea of the cloud. I think that's a natural progression um, as we as we get more and more things. But you just like the idea of Apple monitoring. Well, the cloud I, yeah, or it, it's, you it's a matter of who, of who controls right. content that's in the cloud. Right. You know, if I pay for this, is it mine? Is it yours? I tend to think it's mine. I'm not. You know, obviously there are, there are certain restrictions to the law. If I buy a song and I can't just copy it whenever I want to. Right. That's true. Even now, if you buy a CD, I mean, you're ostensibly. Right, exactly. But I, I don't want Apple deciding someday that because they don't carry this artist anymore, suddenly I don't get to listen to that song that I made. Right. You just don't want to give one company that much control. Right. So I totally agree with And if you look at the way Apple has handled the iPad and the iPhone development, they really, really, really want to be in control of that. And they have pull that. Yep. Oh, yeah, they have. And they also, well, and they, you know, they're like, well, we'll never pull an app off your device. We, we only did that once, but it's like, you know, just the fact that they can makes me feel like it's not my device. I buy the thing and I want it to be mine, you know, and it's like, and and it doesn't feel like mine. It feels like Apple's. Maybe that's what it is, really, about Apple's products. Like the rent thing. Yeah, in that particular case, licensing so, it. Apple isn't the only one that's done that. Amazon pulled books off, off the Kindle that people have paid for. Sure. Google has pulled an app or two. Now, granted, in Google's case, it was because the app was, was malware, but the fact that they, they show that they can do that, and, you know, if they do that, I'm not in the boardroom making as part of these decisions, you know, so I, I, don't, I tend not to trust other people to make these decisions for me. Well, I, to that extent, I kind of agree with what, what Sheppy said, which is that even if you don't like the policy, at least if there's a clearly articulated policy that's sure. consistently enforced, right. it, at least you know the parameters of what you're working with as opposed to this very opaque nature of what makes an app okay. Right. Well, 
Before we get to closing statements, because we're almost out of time, are there any questions for our panelists? Dean. I have a number of comments or just thoughts about this. I think the environment has changed since 1978. I bought it after 1978. Learned how, learned basic, learned a little bit of Pascal. And then the commercial apps started coming out once Apple Works was out there. I, interest in programming and that sort of thing. You became a user. I became a user. I still am. I can still do ER Pound 6 and IM Pound 6 and all that sort of stuff, but it's very fuzzy. I'm a user, I think, today. I'm a Macintosh user, definitely not a programmer. And, uh, so you learned basically to do the things that, that I wanted to do with a computer. And AppWorks ended up AppleWorks ended up being a better implementation, by far, of what I could program. And that's the tool that I used, and that's the way I've gone. So right now, I'm a Macintosh user, definitely not a programmer. I'm an iPod Touch user, definitely not a programmer. Not even interested in a phone. I'm one of the, well, there's one other person here that's not a cell phone user, but I don't even own a cell phone. Don't have a, so I don't have a need for one, just in my lifestyle. And people that I associate with, coworkers and friends, most of them do not have the background that I have, so that it's really scary that I'm their technical consultant, I'm their other drug. And that's pretty scary. And that's the majority. That's how I got that's what I was that guy too. Right. <laughs> but I have another another profession that pays me better. But that's what I see Apple becoming is the Apple not computer company, but just Apple Incorporated selling a piece of hardware that people like to use. I'm amazed at the number of coworkers that as soon as the iPhone came out, yeah, one person it, it, it got is it, amazing. and it went the success just of through the whole, you know, pharmacy staff, which is a large part of my life. And there's one or two Android users, there's one or two BlackBerry users, but everyone, it seems like, has gone over to the iPhone. And right. what are they I'm using like, it they for? On that thing? Um, they're using it for very simple things. They're using it for a phone. Fortunately, most of us live in a fairly decent AT&T coverage area, so that's not a problem. But they're using it mainly to buy their little 99 for free apps, and that's what they waste an awful lot of their time on. That's Facebook. Uh, Rob, I have a question. Most of our conversations here were about software and software delivery. What about the hardware? I mean, I can't upgrade the memory in it. I've got no slots. I can't make it no, do. You've got a port you can pay handsomely for and learn the specs on. <laughs> yeah, I think that's not a point that I was trying to make earlier. Yeah. There's no way to upgrade that thing. Yeah. Uh, it's like the first Mac. Yeah. But I, I think, think it's, 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 it's crazy to put that card in. Because you can do that without, you know, jeopardizing the reliability or, or the experience at all. Yeah. It's that they want to spend charge a hundred bucks for sixteen gig of RAM. Well, and, and they want you to realize you made a mistake with your sixteen gig of RAM and then buy a sixty-four. I remember when I got my uh, BlackBerry. You know, my first BlackBerry, my friend had a, had a what an eight gig iPhone or something like that. 
and I, I went out and bought a, a 16 gig SD memory card. I stuck it in there and upgraded and doubled the memory for $30. You know, there's no way you could do that. You'd have to go buy, you know, wait for the next 16 gig iPhone and then pay $400 or an hour much for that. Oh, you That's can crack it open and desolder the RAM. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've got a lot of space in there. Yeah. got a memory card. It's the stuff I wanted. That's why this isn't an iPhone. I want an iPhone. Yeah, exactly. But I want an iPhone with the ability to make it Apple, my Apple, Apple makes some really great stuff. Like I said, I want to like Apple, but there's just a lot of baggage there that I just can't, I can't really get around. You're being annoying. I mean, you take that $30, that, that, uh, $30 and go spend it again and have a different set of memory for that same Right, memory. exactly. Yeah, and you can back it. You can take a whole snapshot of the BlackBerry and throw it on that SD card without trusting whether iTunes is going to sync it right. Andy, did you have your hand up? Uh, yeah. Okay, so I've got to go Andy, Mark, and Jim, and then closing comments. I don't hear as much Apple say this about the iPhone, but what about that by controlling it, they're also being able to lock down the security, which you know, in the Windows world is a nightmare with malware, viruses, and password stealing. And you know, that by locking this down, they really can insulate a lot better. Something that, I don't know, maybe could take off over 10 years with malware on these mobile devices. Should they want my dad getting a virus on his iPhone? That would be really bad. I think that is actually an extremely legitimate point, and one that I tend, that I should think about more, quite honestly. But it, uh, I do think, unfortunately, malware is part of modern computing, and, and it is something that you know, when you've got when you've got a cop on every corner, you can, you know, it's, it might be not as comfortable when it's open, but. Yes, oh, a it's get the BlackBerry uh, RIM doesn't like move the dogs or apps or what you do with their apps. There's there's no malware at all on BlackBerry. That's why I get when you use it. It's, it's considered the most secure mobile platform out there right now and has been for quite some time. And and they put tons of effort into the absolute security on that device. Much more than that. It's just two different approaches to the security. Apple says we don't want to have to develop the security software, so we're going to control it by. This other method. Well, and it really reflects the corporate culture of those two companies. You know, just as Apple is sort of trying to get the iPhone into business, their heart and soul is, you know, user products, and it's the same thing with BlackBerry. They're trying to make their devices consumer friendly, but it's always going to feel like, you know, a corporate device. Absolutely. Mark. Um, one thing I also want to say about, about the iPad, if I wanted to program for it, I mean, anybody can program for the iPad, it download, but then if I want to give it to, my friend used to pay. I used to pay a lot of money for it, which on the Apple II, all you do was buy a spend five bucks back in the day on a, on a floppy disk, which was a lot, a lot easier to distribute back then. And the cost of entry is a lot lower. I think that's a little bit. It's a little bit different. You know, you, you didn't have the you had bullet points, but you didn't have the internet as a as a mass form of, of distributing these these apps. If you wanted to make commercial applications that, that were going to make you some serious money that you could you know live on. You had to spend a lot of money to, to build the infrastructure to distribute these discs, to buy advertisements, to get good reviews and send magazines. out paper catalogs. Right, instead of just putting this on a, on a web page and doing a little Google SEO. Absolutely. Jen. One, is Linux the new open experience that Apple II was? Uh, to why not allow? Oh, oh, why? That's it. Why is Apple not allowed emulators while supporting boot camp 
a virtual machine like parallel with VMware. Three, I don't really agree in general the corporate responsibility to their stockholders overrides all other considerations such as consumer protection, environment, labor, prices, and enriching monopoly, etc. Right, I'll start with the Linux question. Is Linux the new open experience that happened to us? I think arguably yes. Um, it, it, it is, and there are a number of <coughs> Apple people who've gone to Linux, but then they came back to Mac when Mac went. Un Unix, yeah. because it offered a lot of the same kind of thing, and you can still make a Mac do anything you want. No. But, but yeah, Linux is the spirit of make this thing do something. It's you know, you, you, there's a much much steeper learning curve than there is on the Apple II by the nature of it being a more complex operating system. But you know, if you're willing to, but from scale, it. but from that environment, that Linux culture. Has done some some really real revolutions in programming, like Ruby and Python, absolutely, which are absolutely the next basic. I but Apple can't make you money. A lot easier in programming than anything else. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you oh, could program in right, like you do Ruby or Python for the, for iOS, like yeah. that would be great. Yeah, that'd be great. Mike, are you a Unix guy? Uh, a little bit. Um, yeah, I, with, with the latest revisions of Ubuntu uh, and uh, a couple of new, new other distros out there, Linux has become very easy for for end user just to stick in and run. You know, you don't have to go through and, and set up config files and things like you used to do, and, and recompile the kernel every every day or two every time you want to do something different. On the other hand, uh, my experience with Linux is basically when I stick it in there and go, well, this is really nice, but it doesn't really do anything that I don't already have over here, and there's no there's no compelling. I had that same issue. Yeah, there's no compelling reason for me to, to switch and to have to, to learn all the, the little stuff over again. You know, and, and I kind of find that, especially with this, this is might not go over well in this room, but especially with with Windows Seven um, and the updates that have come. You know, it's taken Microsoft a long time, but they're finally starting to catch up to Mac OS, to Mac OS and especially OS 10, to the point where when I look at, at uh, a MacBook Pro or something, it's, it's very pretty and it doesn't, it doesn't really do anything that much better than what I already have, and it's just not worth the effort to switch over. Yeah. Give me one about the uh, why they don't allow emulators while they're supporting bootcamp with virtual machines. Well, they're maintaining two separate standards for Mac and iOS. I mean, the Mac, they basically said you can do what you want. They can't prohibit emulators on a Mac because they don't have that control. But with iOS, they do. Well, yeah, that's totally cynical. They, they support bootcamp because they wanted to get people moved on right, the Intel right. Macs. That's the only reason. Yeah. Um, if they didn't have to do it to make money, they wouldn't have. Yeah, and so the reason they don't on the iPhone is because they can. Yeah, we're in parallels. We'll allow you to run other operating systems. Yeah, but they can't stop a developer they from writing an emulator on a Mac. Yeah. I see. They were designing Mac OS X now. Do you think they will try to stop? Maybe. Maybe. Like, the next thing we see from Apple, unless, unless they saw some compelling business reason to allow it, then yes. There. The next thing we see may be an iPad right, laptop with a keyboard right. and a mouse. Or a touch iMac. Or a touch whatever. Right. Exactly. Right. 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 Right.
And how long has it been since they really featured prominently Darwin? Well, Steve wanted Steve has executed his strategy. He's working on the next big thing. Yeah. And, not, and it's not the match. <laughs> I would you know but you joke, but I would love that because you can't type on that damn thing. And to have something that would allow you to actually input expressively would be huge. Exactly. <laughs> Tony knows how to input expressively. <laughs> well, I said that we would go from Jim to closing comments, and we are running a little bit over. I want to get people to lunch on time. So, just going down the line as we started, if you have any closing remarks, Mike? Uh, I don't really have anything, but thanks for letting me ramble and complain. And it makes me know a lot about a lot of things. So, <laughs> you're going for it. Well, you did it very well. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for um, hearing all this, and, and yeah, I think it is a very complex issue, and it's not one that has an easy black or white answer. I mean, I'm sympathetic to users, and I'm sympathetic to developers, and those things do come into conflict, and, and Apple is the access because they've you know, been my friend for a computing. And Mark? I think, I think modern times are good because Openness just happens to make sense for Apple as a business model. Um, and as long as that's true, I think we're all going to benefit. Things will get a little more open. Well, I think it's safe to say that we're probably not going to be seeing iPad conferences in 20 years. Uh, this used to be a. a New and friendly conference. Yeah, so. well, I'm, I just want I'm looking for. Is it now a new hostile one? Yes. I want to close with uh, something that actually Jason Scott told me. He said that he was talking about closed systems in general Facebook, Wikipedia, iPad, etc. And he said um, people think Facebook is an unstoppable juggernaut and we have to fight because if we don't, it will always be like this. But something better will come along that will import everything worthwhile out of your Facebook account. It's really bad to flip out as if this were life and death. We're doing the same thing with the iPad, all this crapola of closed systems versus open systems, with people rooting for companies like their sports teams. At the same time, there was the Altair and the Atari 800 and the Apple II. We still have the Atari 2600 and the NES, two completely closed systems that work dependently. We lived with it, it was fine, and now they're gone and there are other things. Yeah. You, I'm bothered by the number of people who happily defend ease over freedom, but Facebook and their like won't survive more than another five years in their current form. You won't recognize them in five years, they'll be something completely different. They can't survive as they are. Look at MySpace or Friendster or Orkin. There's a lot of space in the ecosystem. I'm not too worried. We won't even be thinking about the iPad by October. <laughs> at least in the context of the fury or furor that's causing that. So. Well, thank you very much for attending.